Hello and welcome to our fifth Funds Fan podcast brought to you by Broker Interactive Investor in conjunction with Money Observer and Moneywise magazines. I'm Carl Corwell, Deputy Editor of Money Observer, and today I have three guests with me. I have Richard Hunter, Head of Market at Interactive Investor, Faith Glasgow, the Editor of Money Observer, and Theodore Diloff, the Fund Analyst at Interactive Investor. So we're going to kick off with uh, Richard, as the main talking point that we need to discuss is the markets. A lot has been going on since we recorded our last podcast, which was in mid-February, a time when markets were nice and calm and continuing to tick higher. But all that has changed when markets opened on Monday the 23rd of February, in the UK at least, as fears about the spread of the coronavirus strengthened. Richard, what's been going on and how big has this sell-off been? Well, in overall terms, it's been quite a sell-off. Um, it's reminiscent, particularly in terms of that particular week that you mentioned, of what happened over a dec- decade ago during the financial crisis. Um, just by way of example, um, we'll, we'll get to the UK in a minute, but um, leading up until that Monday the 23rd of February, uh, US markets, again, on the, on the basis of a strong economy uh, and plenty in the pipeline as well, were continuing to fire ahead. The main two indexes, the S&P and the Dow, were up around 2.5%, and the technology-heavy Nasdaq index was up around 8.5%. If we fast forward to today, we've now got a situation whereby the Nasdaq is down nearly 3%, uh, the S&P is down over 6%, and the Dow Jones is down around 8.5%. That's a fairly significant swing, and I, I'm sure we'll get to, the, get to that in a moment. But in the UK, it's been an even more difficult time. We, we were drifting slightly mid-February, hadn't really made too much of a movement in either direction. As we speak, the FTSE 100 is now down 14% in the year to date, which is a significant move given that we're just in early March. There's a couple of reasons for that, quite apart from the fact that there's been uh, a deterioration in sentiment generally around the globe. Um, the way the FTSE 100 is, is made up, um, there's a couple of massive oil stocks in there, BP and Shell. There's a good spattering uh, of mining stocks as well. And both of, for both of those sectors, the concern is that there's been demand destruction in China in particular, which of course is the world's second largest economy. And another sort of sector which has and will probably continue uh, to be hit quite hard is, is around the tourism sector. And we've got quite a few of those uh, in the FTSE 100 uh, as well. For example, if, if you look at International Consolidated Airlines, which is the owner inter alia of British Airways, um, they've obviously now taken a hit. They're down 36% uh, in the year to date. EasyJet are down 32% in the year to date. Um, the uh, cruise company Carnival, another FTSE 100 constituent, down 44%. Um, and the travel company QE, CUI, um, is down 46%. In fact, in, in the in the case of that latter one, it's actually resulted in its relegation uh, from the FTSE 100, which will take place in a couple of weeks' time. Mm. So, I mean, it certainly has to sound like that um, those businesses that are going to be more negatively impacted by uh, coronavirus, particularly if it um, becomes more of a pandemic than it is at the time that we're speaking, they've obviously sold off significantly to reflect that. Yes, that's right. And um, 
I mean, the, the, the tentacles are really starting to spread now. There, there was um, a, a CO2 emissions graph from NASA the other day um, going from orange where China had been up and firing in terms of its factories and so on. It's now virtually white. China is basically um, at a standstill. The, the Lunar New Year uh, became something of a non-event. That's obviously going to continue to have an impact, not just on general retail spending, but also um, the fact that uh, in a country that large, people need to travel around they're simply not doing that and they're also big tourists of course and and again in terms of stock specifics on uh, in the UK uh, we've had warnings from the likes of Burberry who rely on the uh, Asian consumer uh, HSBC and Standard Chartered both big Asian presences have, have said they had enough to um, uh, contend with previously on the basis that the Chinese economy had been showing some signs of coming off the boil. Then, of course, we had the Hong Kong protests, and now we've got this. So there's any, any number uh, of stocks that have been beaten down uh, as a consequence. And I think it's fair to say, if you look at the uh, recent Chinese car sales figures, which are down over 90% over the last month or so, that we can pretty much write off uh, the first quarter in terms of China. Now that will and has already had impact on both the demand and supply chains. The demand side we've already mentioned, so there'll be um, less requirement for oil and, and minerals out of the ground. On the supply side, as Apple mentioned uh, right at the top of this, um, they're, they're a big supplier of parts for Apple. So that kind of supply chain uh, is also starting to filter through. And it's only been over the last couple of weeks that more and more companies have put their heads above the parapet to say we have actual knock-on problems here uh, that we've started to see that term um, quick deceleration in indices generally this week we've seen um, well the start of this week um, markets bounce back yep and then they fell back and they seem to have bounced back again I mean it does seem to be that the worst of this is not yet over is that something you'd agree with yeah I mean one thing we, we can tell from experience, the, the 87 crash, uh, the dot-com bubble uh, and burst, financial crisis, you, there, there is an, um, uh, an element of uh, irrationality and markets do tend to overshoot in either direction. What you also see, uh, which is in common with those previous dives, um, is that it's that um, element of uncertainty. That's why you can't call the bottom. Um, we know that it's going to impact the Chinese economy particularly hard in the first quarter. That is probably going to start to really filter through to the global economy in the second quarter. So it's just not something you can easily put a figure on. So we're going to remain under pressure for that moment. In the meantime, as you rightly say, earlier this week, the States did have something of a bounce back. But of course, since then, we've had a few more cases reported in New York. Uh, and the state of California has uh, said that it's in a state of emergency. And even though the numbers remain minuscule uh, in terms of the overall global population, the question is, when are we going to get to or are we going to get to pandemic status? And what sort of percentages might those figures hit? So I think until there's even an element of certainty over some sort of containment of the coronavirus, markets are going to continue to be extremely jittery. And what would your, I mean, I may bring you in it in, at this point, Faith, as well. I mean, what would your sort of message be for people listening to this podcast who predominantly buy funds, but presumably will probably have exposure to the UK market, and a lot of investors have a lot of home bias. Is it a case of um, trusting the fund manager to potentially ride this storm? It's a very difficult one. I mean, the danger is that 
you you do panic sell in keeping with everybody else and then you fail to time the market and you miss some of the recovery when it finally comes i mean i, I don't know what the answer is i wish i did i mean obviously if you if you're you know if you're in your 30s or 40s and you've got you know you're investing on a 30 or 20 year time horizon these falls may potentially actually benefit you in the long term if markets obviously because yeah. over the long term markets do recover and you'll benefit from all the, the compounds and that comes with a recovery i mean i think for, for regular savers they just will tick along they'll keep putting their money into the markets and as the markets become cheaper their money will buy more each each time this is when regular saving really comes into its own. It's great as prices fall and you can buy more units, your money buys more units, and then you're better placed for the eventual recovery when it comes. It's for people who, who are close to retirement that the, the dilemma is most focused on. I think the other thing is that um, there's always that element that once you sell your shares, you've crystallised a loss as opposed to trying to ride it through. Yeah. There are also other elements at play which are very difficult to quantify. Inevitably, there's going to be some institutional investors who will have uh, came, come away from the equity market to uh, chase one of the haven securities, whether that be government bonds, and we've seen how well gold has performed, for example. So there's an element of selling pressure which isn't necessarily um, allied to the fundamentals of the individual companies. And indeed, within the FTSE 100, there will be companies um, much less affected uh, by the outbreak of the coronavirus who have nonetheless been marked down in tandem. Well, thanks, Richard, and thanks, Faith, for plenty of um, interesting insight there into how markets have been faring. In terms of um, fund news, one interesting data nugget uh, that came up from Morningstar was in relation to the amount of money going into ESG-focused funds. The data provider found that in January, over half of the £1.3 billion invested in ESG or sustainability-focused funds went into one passive fund, which was the BlackRock, ACS World Low Carbon Equity Tracker. Personally, I found this very surprising given there's been a lot of talk around the benefits of active fund managers adding value when it comes to ESG, but um, in relation to um, to fund sales, this is not, well, it didn't materialise in January with half it going into a passive fund. What did you make of it, Faith? I think it's worth pointing out that, that tracker funds, as far as ESG is concerned, tend to be very much on the negative screening end of the spectrum. They tend just to cut out the baddies, the bad companies. So in this case, BlackRock Tracker was cutting out the carbon-heavy companies. So it's um, more of a light-touch approach, I suppose. Yeah, effectively, it's a, it's a pretty light touch. They're not selecting companies for their good behaviour or anything other than uh, ability to minimise carbon emissions. In this particular case, though, I think the point is that fund was set up to cater for big pension companies who are looking to put pension scheme funds into a more sustainable environment. So the big jumps in the subscriptions to, to this particular fund came from a couple of big new schemes. I think there was a Swansea council scheme and a Gwent council scheme, both of which started to make use of this of this particular fund. It's a tricky one because when you look at the uh, top 10 holdings in this tracker fund, it's things like, well, it's all the basic tech giants. It's Google, Apple, Amazon, Facebook. A lot of them, while they may be low carbon companies, have got other very questionable 
um, behaviours or characteristics. An example being Amazon packaging has come under scrutiny uh, recently for being ridiculously excessive. I've got a new, new pair of trainers recently and you should have seen the size of the package. This is the difference, isn't it? If you invest passively, it's, it's all quantitative, isn't it? And um, obviously these companies, I assume, do score well in terms of tra- transitioning to reduce their carbon footprint. Mm. An active fund manager, they would have a more subjective view on, um, on all these companies. Obviously, Facebook, there's a lack of transparency regarding how it collects and shares information. Yeah. And I assume that's why some fund managers who are investing on an ESG ESG mindset wouldn't wouldn't invest in the company. Also in the top ten is Johnson and Johnson. Obviously they uh, supply shampoo and talcum powder. You know it's a lot of plastic there, isn't it? I think they, they are going to make they are taking steps to to make the plastic more reusable uh, or compostable. If it, if it was my money invested in a pension fund and I saw those companies in the top ten, I'd be very surprised. Thing to remember is that this whole ESG sustainability question is just enormously complex and tracker funds are taking a very one-dimensional approach to it they are doing what it says on the tin clearly though as we've just been highlighting there are all sorts of other ingredients that you need to build in and if they those factors do bother you then probably you're better off looking for a for an actively managed fund where you know the manager is act, is actually uh, able to weigh up a broader basket of factors. Very true. Mm. And the final news item concerns the Merion North American Equity Fund, which features on Interactive Investors' Super 60 Fund list. The fund was placed under formal review on the 25th of February. This followed from on from the announcement that Merion is set to be acquired by Jupiter and a co-manager on the Merion Fund is set to leave the business. Um, Interactive Investors Investment Committee will be seeking a better understanding of what changes, if any, are likely to take place under the acquisition and how that could impact the fund's team structure, philosophy and process. Theodore, could you shed some further light on this in terms of what sort of questions you'll be asking Marion as part of um, the review of the fund? In general terms, we will meet Marion and ask them questions around the new corporate structure and how is it going to impact the strategy that we recommend to our customers? So the questions may include issues around the incentives for the managers um, under the new corporate structure, what their stake in the business would be, and what drives the overall change for, for, for the change for the business. But please bear in mind that Marion is a fairly newly established business, so it's being launched two years ago. And it has just gained some uh, brand recognition, and now we see that this change with Jupiter may impact the overall strategy. And on a separate note, of course, we want to meet them and ask more questions about uh, the recent announcement of a manager leave and what's the succession plan for this manager and is there going to be any impact for, for the strategy overall? Thank you. And of course, we will keep listeners um, well informed as to uh, what the final decision is when that is made in the coming months. We are now going to move on to our reader question of the week. But before we get to it, quick plea for more questions, please. And we have a couple in the queue, but we would love to receive more. And you can do so by emailing your question to editorial at ii.co.uk. And when you submit your question, please do put Funds Fan Podcast in the subject line of the email. That's Funds Fan Podcast. Okay. Our reader question this week concerns the recent stock market volatility. It simply says, I'm planning to retire in the next couple of months. 
and start taking money out of my pension given the recent stock market falls should I hold off and instead carry on working? Um, Richard, I'm going to bring you into this as well, but I hope and faith you could uh, start off with your thoughts. The big problem really is if you are taking a fixed amount of income from your pension pot each month, say you've got a £100,000 and you're drawing a £5,000 income. The difficulty is that in order to maintain that level of income as as the value of your pot falls, you have to cash in more and more units. And so you're actually depleting the root value of your of your pot. And if you do this at the start of your retirement, it can leave you with a, a, a great depletion. The main thing to take away from this, I think, is that the um, the best thing to do if you do want to retire anyway is to concentrate only on taking uh, the natural income, the dividends paid out by the funds in your pension. If you don't do that, the alternative really is to use other savings, an ISA possibly, and just leave the money in your pension and let it recover. But you know, the question is how long are you in a position to, to hold off tapping into it for? And I guess, Richard, you might be able to give some insight into what the outlook is for the second half of the year. Yeah, I mean, as we were discussing earlier, I, I think we can um, safely say that the first quarter is going to be a bit of a write-off. Yeah. Um, naturally, that means uh, in terms of the second quarter, we will also uh, see some of that cascading through. Um, one would therefore hope that in the second half of the year, things are going to start to stabilise. And if you're being an ultra-optimist, um, if economies were starting to stabilise in the third and fourth quarters, the markets will be ahead of that. The market's obviously a discounting mechanism. It's trying to anticipate what's going to be happening in the next few months. So if we start to get a little positive news on this particular outbreak, uh, that recovery in markets, if not economies, could be sooner rather than later. I think the issue with this particular question, as you rightly say, um, is that investment is a, is a long-term project, um, but there will be certain times, such as this reader's times, when you have to make a decision one way or other. If it was a question of, um, again, as we were mentioning earlier when Carl said, if you were uh, at the start of your investment career, you may well have more of a propensity to ride the storm out. But of course, if you're now getting to a situation you have to actually start withdrawing funds, um, ultimately, unfortunately, um, you've, got to, you've got to withdraw those funds. And uh, if, if that's the case, it's just um, one of those unlucky bouts of, of rather bad timing. Yeah, yeah. In which case, if you possibly can work for a little bit longer, it's probably a good idea to try and do so. Not necessarily what you wanted to hear, I'm afraid. Well, one thing you can't time is the market. Mm. So, um, yeah, thank you for your, both your thoughts there. And finally, as usual, the last segment of the podcast is the Super 60 Fund Focus. And here we have Theodore this week to make his choice. So, um, yeah, please take it away. What have you chosen this week? My pick for, for this week is the TR Property Investment Trust. So this is uh, one of the oldest and the largest pan-European property equity investment trust, which was launched back in 1905 and is currently managed by one of the highly regarded managers in this space, Marcus Fairmuch. Uh, he's been taking over since 2011 and has a wealth of knowledge and experience in both physical and listed properties and has a, the support of six investment professionals, including two qualified property surveyors. And also the, the overall team could seek support from the BMO Global Asset Management. The investment discipline is uh, based 
on fundamental analysis and rigorous operational due diligence combined with a macro overlay. The team believes that listed property markets are inefficient so they can exploit this inefficient area. And this is how the trust could add value for its clients. So this is a property portfolio that invests in property shares rather than bricks and mortar. Is that correct, Joe? Uh, so the property invests the majority of the client's money into listed shares, but could also tap into uh, some physical property. So, for example, at the moment, the fund has about 6% in physical property, but taking into consideration that this is an investment trust, investors shouldn't be worried about liquidity mismatches and other bad news that have been in the market for the last probably three to four years. So they can access their money freely. The portfolio is built, is built around the idea of remaining fairly neutral to uh, to the benchmark at uh, regional and sector level, and they can take positions plus minus 3% to the index, because, and the trust could potentially employ up to 55% gearing, and the current level, I think it's about 12%. So at the end of January 2020, the property trust um, has a concentrated portfolio of around 40 stocks, uh, with the top three largest geographical exposures being the UK, uh, continental Europe, and in particular Germany and France. In terms of sector allocation, this trust is uh, well spread across industrial offices, residential, retail estate, and despite the ongoing uncertainty around uh, Brexit, the team still believes that central London offices remain attractive assets, especially for overseas buyers due to its limited office supply. And as a result, the UK is also the largest overweight relative to the benchmarks, as I just mentioned. So uh, the top three holdings, uh, which represent almost about a quarter of the overall portfolio, include uh, Venovia, uh, Unibail, Redemco, Westfield, and Lecky Mobilen with around 6%. And uh, currently the portfolio is tilted slightly towards the mid-cap spectrum, but however, the team could take some positions in smaller companies and due to the the close standard structure of the trust that shouldn't be a worry for the customers. And is one of the key attractions the fact that it can have exposure to physical property as well as shares? And is, is there a limit in terms of the percentage exposure in terms of how much it can have in bricks and mortar? Yes, yes. So there is a 15% limit for, for the manager. Uh, and as I said, currently the portfolio has around 6% in physical property. I th- and I think that this is one of probably the benefits for the trust because if you invest in an open-ended structure, physical can be very tricky for you, especially if you're going to need your money over the short term. And uh, I think another special feature for for this property trust is just its performance. So it it has done uh, exceptionally well in terms of uh, of the overall performance. So the trust delivered exceptional above benchmark returns, outperforming its index with 18 and 27% over three and five years, which is remarkable. And um, as our listeners know, property is usually focused on income generation and therefore it shouldn't be surprising that uh, despite not being uh, its formal objective, the trust uh, has increased its its dividend roughly about two and a half times for the last decade. And uh, the current yield for the trust stands around 3%. Thank you for that. And um, thank you to all my guests. Hope you enjoyed episode five and um, we'll be back in a few weeks.